Chapter 10 is an amazing chapter. All of these books are, but it's something special to me about chapter 10 because it contains the greatest miracle in the scriptures when it comes to natural miracles. A chapter that is, we have to understand, it is literal and it is historical and a chapter that is filled with all sorts of types and shadows and pictures. Romans chapter 15 reminds us, the Apostle Paul says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning. When Paul goes through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's speaking about all these shadows and types as the children of Israel are journeying, journeying through the through the wilderness, and he speaks of Christ being that rock that followed them. I'd like to see that. I've got to ask the Lord about that when I get to heaven. And he, and he begins to speak about this is why we should not murmur or complain. And so once again, we're learning from these types and shadows and pictures. And as we, as we come to chapter 10, we come to this battle of Jerusalem, as it were. We come to this imposter named Adonai Zedek. The Lord of righteousness is what it implies here. And remember in Genesis chapter 14, we meet another character, and his name is Melchizedek, the prince of righteousness. But now we meet Adonai Zedek, the Lord of righteousness. But we're going to find out that this Adonai Zedek is a hater of God's people who will make war with the nation of Israel. So he's really, I call them a poser, being something, acting like something that he's not. And he represents something, and under him really is a line, we'll see these other four kings of the heartland of Israel And we're looking at, once again, this southern campaign that Joshua and his generals are making this morning. And this battle right here will be the most significant battle in the book of Joshua. So we have the last miracle in the book of Joshua, and yet I believe it's the greatest miracle also here. I believe the earth is the center of, of the cosmos. It's right there in the center for a purpose. The Bible tells us the lamb was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. Revelations chapter 13, verse 8. So I believe that everything else the Godhead created around the earth centered around Jerusalem, centered around that hill called Golgotha or Calvary. Because before Anything else the Lord made or formed, that was the place where redemption was foreordained, not only foreordained there before anything was officially made, that was the place eternally where everything was settled. So even then, we see in the Old Testament, Satan knowing the importance of Jerusalem And that hill where the cross would be, he knew, I believe, the importance. But 
He didn't know exactly the plan of God, how he was going to bring this to fruition, or else he wouldn't have spent his time tirelessly trying to kill Messiah. When he did that, when he helped do that, put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, he was really making a victory out of what was going on. So spiritually, at Jerusalem is where this battle is fought. And Adonai Zedek, once again, he's nothing but an imposter. And he's also, we have to be careful for him being an imposter in our lives. And I'm speaking of believers right here. We have to make sure that our righteousness, the righteousness that lives in us, is a righteousness that's only given through our Savior, Jesus Christ. That righteousness dwells in every believer. So this will be a battle for the heartland because once Joshua breaks the back in this southern campaign with these five kings, it's almost like mop-up duty for the rest of the time. And understand that Israel, they never conquer all of the territory that God had planned for them to conquer. Never did. Under Saul, their first king, just a minute area they conquered. And then when David comes on the throne, and the reason Saul didn't conquer as much land as God wanted him to, because the wrong king was on the throne. David comes on the throne, the right king at the right place, and that's the only time they conquer a lot more territory. Even though they don't conquer everything that God had for them, they conquer a lot. The kingdoms are united. Judah comes together with Israel, and they expand. And God wanted them to expand all the way to the Euphrates, but they never did that. And that just shows us once again, remember the promised land to us is once we've given our lives to Jesus Christ, I'll put it this way, this body, my body is my promised land and I've got to yield and I've got to uh, defeat every fleshly idea, every fleshly thought, every fleshly move this flesh wants to make. God has given me everything for life and godliness. And if I yield to him, even when I don't understand it, even though I said, Lord, this can't be right. If I just yield to him and have faith in his word, I will become more like Christ. You will become more like Christ each and every day. And we will begin to conquer more and more of the promised land, the promises of God that he's given to us. And that's going to be a problem right here because Adonai Zedek, his name means self-righteousness also. And he's trying to come back and take everything that the Lord has given to the children of Israel. And we have to be careful of allowing self-righteousness to dwell in our hearts. It's easy to do. And so this is a lesson for us. It's a warning for us that the only righteousness that we will ever 
that's going to bless us and that we will ever walk in and attain is the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. That's the only victory we will have. So verse 1 tells us, now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, and that's the first time we have the word Jerusalem in the scriptures here, and it's very significant, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and his king, so he had done to Ai and his king. And that's misinformation, by the way, because Joshua hadn't did anything. It was the Lord that was defeating the children of Israel's enemies. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. So Gibeon, we're going to find out, is not this podunk city, wasn't about anything. We're going to find out it says like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. So the Gibeonites, they weren't a bunch of wimps, but they knew what was coming down the pipe. They were tough guys, but they were also, <clears throat> excuse me, they were wise guys also. Tough and wise. I, I like to say all the time, a man has to know his limitations. So I try not to do the things I can't do. And that's what the Gibeonites did. It says, therefore, knowing their limitations, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jermoth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me. Self-righteousness is always about me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So Adonai Zedek pulls this coalition together, and they represent, once again, the backbone of the heartland of this southern campaign. They're wanting to make an example out of Gibeon to teach the rest of the nations do not align with Israel. Now remember, the Gibeonites have just made in chapter 9 a covenant with the children of Israel. They had did this because of compromise. Joshua and his generals, they did not go back and re, uh, acquire of the Lord, should we do this? They just said, okay, the bread is moldy, the clothes are torn, the shoes have holes in them, and we're going to take them at their word. And they make this covenant. But on the side of the Gibeonites, they surrendered. They acknowledged a stronger power. They submitted to Joshua and the children of Israel, and they did that willingly, knowing what would have happened if they didn't do that. And when the enemy sees anything in your life, when we bring something in in subjection to our lives, that's not like Christ, and we go to battle and we have victory, the enemy will always try to come in like a flood to defeat us. There's going to be warfare every time we surrender and submit to Jesus Christ. There's no spiritual progress 
without warfare. That's just the way it is down here. That's why it's vital that every child of God should be in their word, should be in prayer, because it's going to happen. Because it's built, what's happening when you're praying and, in your, and when you're in the word of God, your spiritual antenna begins to be more aware of your surroundings. Then we are in tune to another stimuli whose frequency is tuned to the vertical. We're in touch with God. We're more aware of God when we're in prayer and when we're in the world, in the word, instead of the things that are of the horizontal, the worldly things, the earthly things. And we learn to begin to hear, we begin to sense the voice of God, and we understand his presence. I can't understand his presence watching the Atlanta Falcons on Sunday, Sunday in and Sunday out, or any other sports team. That's not going to draw me closer to God, even though I do those things. But what's going to draw me closer to the Lord is in his word and in prayer, and I'm in tune with him, and I hear from him that way. And I become more keener to spiritual warfare that's going around because it goes around all the time. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So here we have this picture and these kings that's under Adonai Zedek, and it's the first place in the book of Joshua, we've been going through it 10 chapters now, that when you come to these kings, you have their names. You, we didn't have the name of the king of Jericho. We don't know the name of the king of Ai and Bethel. But these five kings, the Holy Spirit wants us to know their names and where they're from. It's very significant. So once again, Adonai Zedek is the Lord of righteousness. That's what his name means. And we know that only Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness. So we know this guy is an imposter. In our heartland, do we have self-righteousness reigning on the throne? I know self-righteousness tries to do this all the time. I think of the Pharisees. Jesus rebuked them time and time again for being self-righteous. See, you and I, we can have this false sense of peace because we have a false sense of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness, what it does, it blinds us to the depravity that we have and who we are without Christ. And God wants to shine that light on our depravity and bring us to him. First, we have to understand that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And until we recognize that, Hey, I'm okay. I go to church once a week. I don't run around. I don't do all those immoral things. But yet, if you're not born again, all that is is self-righteousness. And God is glorified, you guys. When we go to him as sinners and say, Lord, I am a sinner, and I can't save myself. And the only righteousness there is is from you. And would you please 
save me and give me true righteousness, which is your righteousness. Anything else is self-righteousness. The Bible says we love him, speaking of Jesus Christ, because he first loved us. When we understand that it's only because of Christ's righteousness that we can be righteous, then we are less to be judgmental to those around us. When we are aware of our own need, Victor, of grace, we tend to say, yeah, I need grace, but not like that guy. They really need it. That's self-righteousness coming out. Help me with this, because I think the Bible tells me that one little so-called white lie It's nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. So if I'm thinking like that, it shows me that I don't understand sin and I don't understand what grace is. God does not grade on a curve. You have to be 100% righteous or you fail the exam. And the failing of of the exam leads you to hell. So Adonai Zedek, is a poser once again, and he's wanting to usurp Jesus Christ with self-righteousness instead of the righteousness of God. And Adonai Zedek wants to sit on the throne of our hearts, and he's very subtle at how he does that. But this issue of self-righteousness, once again, is caused by blindness. It causes us to be critical with other people, We begin to look down our noses at other Christians like we're better or more spiritual or more deserving of the grace of God. And it's amazing the things that we'll do when we are self-righteous. Because self-righteousness, you tend to be by yourself because no one wants to be around a self-righteous person because they're always pointing the finger at you and your failings. And you're thinking, because you're self-righteous, nobody wants to be around me because I'm holy and they don't want to be holy. I'm strict and I'm this and I'm that. But it's not that. It's because self-righteousness is sitting on the throne of your heart. And we're going to look at that. Verse 3 says, he names the second king, Hoham, And the root of Hoham, it means to crush, it means to destroy. He's the king of Hebron. Hebron means fellowship or an alliance or communion. But aligned under Adonai Zedek, any real communion, the Holy Spirit is saying, is crushed or destroyed because You're under self-righteousness, and you're not going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ if you're being self-righteous. And then it says, Pyram, king of Jarmuth. The root of that, it speaks of a wild ass, Pyram. It means to run wild. And in Israel, they had these wild asses that they would live in the desert all by themselves. And they they were an uncanny animal because... People didn't know how they survived by themselves. And once again, Pyram, the the king of Jarmuth, means you're always by yourself and you feel like you can thrive by yourself. But once again, people don't want to be around you because of your self-righteousness. 
And then you have Japhiah, king of Lachish. Japhiah means to shine. Lachish, I love this, means impregnable. When someone is puffed up with pride, they're impregnable. There's no getting to them because they're self-righteous and they know it all. And you can't give them any directions or anything because they're self-righteous. So you just beat against the wall. I'm okay. That's what they say. But I've got something for self-righteous people. And I love this verse, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You can't reason with the self-righteous person. Once again, they know it all. They're lifted up. And then you have Debir, king of Eglon. Debir means to, it's an oracle. You're speaking something forth. And Eglon, remember in the book of Judges, it says Eglon, a very fat man. So Eglon means fat. And you're all fatted and puffed up because once again, you're speaking forth and you're really speaking forth what you think is the word, but it's all from self-righteousness. Follow me, do this, do that. You shouldn't wear makeup. You shouldn't wear jewelry. You shouldn't do all of these things because you're being self-righteous. And the Bible does not speak of those things. But all of these things are an issue of the heart. It's as if if I take control of the heartland, if I conquer the heartland, everything else will fall into place. And that's what Joshua is about to do here. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. But the thing about the heart is, All of the things that go on in my heart, I'll be the guinea pig this morning. God says, you shouldn't have thought that thought. You shouldn't have had that imagination. And it could go on and on and on throughout the day. That's why the Bible says bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Last night, I'm studying the Word. And if the Lord says, man, you played with that thought for a little while, what if I, in the morning, while you're teaching, on the two TVs, if I put up every thought that you thought and played with just yesterday, what would you do, PV? Well, I'd call Pastor Brian and tell him to teach for me this Sunday. (laughs) And that's what you would do, too. That's what you would do too. That's why the Bible reminds us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ Jesus. We have to do those things because the heart is the issue of everything. This is my third time, I think, saying this, going through the book of Joshua. The heart will always make a convert of the mind. That's where the battle is fought. That's why we need to guard our hearts and take every thought captive. Because sooner or later, what's in the heart, if we play and continue to play with those thoughts and can play with those things, sooner or later, they begin to manifest outwardly. 
That's why God says, take them down quickly. Jesus tells us, give me everything. Jesus is saying, give me your heart. We like to say he's Lord, but he's only Lord when we have given him, as Hillsong would say, our whole heart. I know you want this or that, and I know you want this to go your way, but I want you to put that in my hands, and I want you to let me have it, the whole thing. Once again, the heart of the problem, we know it, is the problem of the heart, and that's what this lesson Jesus is trying to show us here. Verse 5 tells us, therefore, The five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up. They and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So now all five kings, what they do, they lay this siege around Gibeon. And in doing this, They are trying to draw the children of Israel into this battle. And even during this, and you you better believe the Gibeonites are upset. They're frantic. They don't know what to do because this siege wall has been put around them, and they're about to go in and attack them. And God is saying, don't worry. I'm going to work all of this out for your good because what they're doing even though they're going out of their wall cities, these four, these five kings, now when Joshua and the boys come up, they're not fighting against wall cities anymore. They're all out in the open. So God is going to slaughter all of them out in the open. Instead of going from this wall city to that wall city, God says, I'm just going to throw a strike and get rid of them all for you guys, even though they're panicking because they don't know the end of the story. That's like all of us when something comes down the pipe and we don't like. We panic instead of trusting the Lord while he's working things out for our good. God's providence is amazing to me. He tells us in verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgog, saying, Do not forsake your servant. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. Joshua did not want to get this phone call. They were already mumbling that they had come into covenant with them. And now the Bible doesn't tell us, was it a week? Was it two weeks? But I'm sure it was very soon. They've got to go and help them. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us, So Joshua, notice what it says, ascended. We're going to look at that. From Gilgog, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, now please take note of this, do not fear them. I believe Joshua and his troops were fearful. These were the largest armies that they will battle and it's five of them because of this coalition. And I'm sure because I'm a human being. I'm sure every man of Joshua's army was complaining. I know we shouldn't have made this agreement. 
I know we should have destroyed them. Lord, why didn't you let us destroy them? Now we're about to get destroyed. That's what they're thinking. They're dispirited. Their morale is low, even if, if they have any morale at all. And then Joshua gets this, and it's called a prophetic past tense statement. God tells him, do not fear them. So we can assume that Joshua prayed here, so he's learning. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand, these five kings. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua, it's a done deal. So God tells him, He's going to have victory in the battle before the battle. And so he can just pause and take a sigh of relief. But how many would do that? Once again, this is a historical account here. To us, it might be just words on a page because we're doing okay. We're comfortable. We eat well. We're doing okay. We don't have five kings to go fight after this, so we're doing okay. But it's another thing when you've just been called to arms to go and battle these five vicious kings with the men you have. And you're going to help a group of people that's not your friends. We know that war is messy. It always has been. But for them to hear what God has just said is reassurance. It's a breath of fresh air. This was pretty valuable stuff. It was great assurance to them. And God speaks to us, you guys, because the Bible tells me he's the same yesterday, today, forever. He speaks to us through the New Testament the same way when we're going through things. He tells us that we are more than conquerors through Christ. A conqueror is someone who goes to battle and then is victorious in the battle. That's a conqueror. But more than a conqueror is from the beginning, you know you're going to win the battle before you go to battle. That's the way every child of God should be. Every battle we face, we should understand because we're on the right team and Jesus is with us, that we are more than a conqueror. We're we're assured of the victory. That's what he says here. We know what's going to happen. The promises of God, they're spiritual to us here. And he says in verse 9, Joshua, therefore, since he's heard this relief from the Lord, since he's heard the Gibeonites says, hey, come save us, he says, therefore came upon them suddenly. Now, why would the Holy Spirit say suddenly here? Because it says, having marched all night from Gilgog. This is a 12-hour march from Gilgog up to the area of Gibeah, 25 miles. It's like PV on the treadmill when he gets on the treadmill. I usually incline to seven, seven and a half. I'm doing good when I do that, you guys. But there's a button you can push, and before you know it, you're like 15. I can't do that, but about 30 seconds. Can you imagine an ascent of 25 miles 
2,000-foot sea level. They go up to 4,000-foot sea level. And when they get there, they have to fight. That's what they're having to go through here. And God has told them at the bottom in Gilgog, I've already given you the victory. I'm thinking, why then do I have to make this walk? up this hill by night. Everything's dark. Why do I have to do that if you've given me the victory? Why can't I just sit here, that's what I like, and wait for the victory to happen, Lord? This is a very interesting picture here. But he's given them the victory, and to get the victory, they have to go all night without sleep, these 25 miles. It's uphill all the way. They start, once again, at 2,000 feet sea level, and they go up to 4,000 foot an accent of 25 miles, and when they get there, they immediately go to battle. That's why it says, hey, suddenly, because they didn't think it was going to happen. And these guys, they are not helping their friends here. I love how C.H. Uh, McIntosh speaks about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And that's what it is all the way through the Bible. God does his part in any battle we face. But we, as children of God, we have a part to do. And it's not God only helps those that help themselves. Don't get it twisted. It's not that. But when God has called us to something, he's going to do his part. But man's responsibility... I have to do mine. What I'm saying here, whatever God has called me to, if I take that first step to do what he's called me to, if something supernatural has to happen for me to have victory and deliverance, God is there for that because that's exactly what's happening right here. But I have to do my part. So he commands them, do your part. Take this trek. 25 miles, what he knows, what we can do, that's what he wants us to do. Jesus shows a picture of this when he's in the synagogue and he tells the man with the withered hand, stretch forth your hand. If he would have never began, he would have never been healed. He had a part in it. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. And why, why do we have to climb these hills? because of trials that happens, because he's strengthening our faith, and it produces character, and it produces hope for the next trial. And the Bible says, hope maketh not ashamed. It only comes through trials and conflicts, and it, it begins to produce faith, more faith in our lives. God is going to have the greatest victory in the natural that we read about in the Bible. The entire solar system will be affected by this. They will go all night without sleep and then all day in the battle, and then God will extend the day so they will fight longer just about another entire day. Now, please hear me here, because sometimes we think if the Lord has blessed us and that he has given us things, he said, he has given us, why do we find ourselves 
in these conflicts all the time? Why do we find ourselves so worn out sometimes by the things he says he has given us by his grace? It's something in this that the Lord wants us to see. He wants our participation with him in any trial or any battle. The Bible says we are co-laborers in Christ. We are yoked in the yoke of Christ. There's a privilege, hear me out, to share in the fellowship of sufferings with Jesus Christ. We're going to be in battles down here as long as we know that Christ is with us. We're going to be in the final analysis more than a conqueror. Walking down here is tough, you guys. So verse 10 tells us, so the Lord, notice it's the Lord, routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. We have this remarkable linguistic words as we look at this battle because they're, they're coming over a ridge now. They've gone 25 miles And they begin the battle, and the Amorites begin to descend down to Beth Horon. That's what's happening here. And they drop 800 feet to Beth Horon, and they're just jumping from ridge to ridge here. That's the setup. It says, because they chase them along the road that goes to Beth Horon. Beth Horon, Beth means house. Horon means wrath, the house of wrath and struck them down as far as Azekah. Azekah means to be fenced in, and Makeda means to herd. This is what the Lord is doing. He's fencing them in. He's herding them in, as it were, to the house of wrath. God is doing this. Notice verse 11, and it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. The Lord joins in to this battle with these hailstones, and he has very good aim here because people say, commentators say, uh, This was natural. It just happened to become a hailstone. Well, common sense tells us if it was just a natural hailstone, it would have hit the Israelis also. God has very good aim. He has this hailstone, and it hits all of the Amorites. This is a supernatural feat here. But what God is doing also, he's judging these people, and he's showing the superiority over their gods, because they worship the Amorites, the Canaanites. They worship Baal, the sun god, the rain god, the weather god, the new green deal god. That's what they worshiped here. And what God is doing, he's saying, okay, you're worshiping Baal. I'm going to show you my superiority over Baal, the exact thing that he did in Egypt with those 10 plagues. And he's saying, you are blaspheming me. And the penalty in the Old Testament for blasphemy is stoning. And that's what he's doing here with this hell. 
Revelation 16, 22, that last seventh bowl of wrath that Jesus will pour over because of a Christ-rejecting sinful world in the tribulation period, it says this, and great hell from heaven fell upon men, each hellstone about the weight of a talent, 100 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, since that plague was exceedingly great. Now, this amazes me. Imagine the children of Israel coming once again over this 25-mile hike, over this ridge. They're tired, they're exhausted, and navigating these ridges like terraces as they come back down to Beth Horam. And all of a sudden, after this hike, they're looking down at these Amorites being killed by these hailstones. Just, they, they probably just sat there and said, hey, let's just watch it. And their God is killing these Amorites. They were complaining going up this hill because they didn't want to go to battle. They didn't want to go to fight and help Gibeon out. They had to go 25 miles in the dark, bumping into God knows what, but they did it. But now they're sitting or standing And they're watching God demolish these people in his own energy. They may have complained all night about this uphill walk. But if they knew what they were going to see at the top of the hill, none of them would have complained at all. Not one of them. And the same thing is true this morning for my daughter Erica for Joanne Shabelsky, for Miss Sue, for you and I, and any of us who are truly going through tough times, day in and day out. The same is true for you and I. Life, this thing we're living, is an uphill walk at times, and it could be most of the time. I'm, I'm reminded of Jacob when he went in front of the, 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 the Pharaoh of Egypt. I'll never forget one of my favorite verses, old, tired. I'm sure Pharaoh thought he was going to boast about what he had done and the great life that he, he had lived. And Jacob gets in front of him. He says, 120 years I've been here and my days have been long and hard. That's what he said. This is an uphill walk, you guys. And as believers, we need to understand that. But we have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away and is reserved for us. The first thing we will see when we come over that ridge, whether we have crawled whether we have climbed, however we get there, the first thing we will see is the face of Jesus Christ, his beauty, to behold him. A God, the God-man who is marked with the marks of slaughter. Everybody else will be looking lovely in the kingdom. And he will be walking around 
with the marks of slaughter. And when we see him, we won't complain. We won't complain about anything that happened down here. Anything we gave him, any time that we yielded to him, or any time we turned the other cheek or walked the extra mile, there won't be a single complaint when we come across that ridge and we see him face to face. That's what every child of God has in store for them. So he says in the latter part of verse 11, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, I can't believe he said this in the sight of Israel. I might have whispered it, but Joshua says it out loud. Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Agilon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies Is this not written in the book of Jasher, a historical book, not inspired? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. I think of the book of Ezekiel. It says that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, where the Lord is talking about the nation of Israel, and he says this in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should destroy it, but I found no one. That's pitiful. He said he found no one. I sought for a man. He didn't say I sought for a denomination. He didn't say I sought for a church movement. Or He sought for an individual, one man that is seeking my face. What will the prayers of one person accomplish? Animated by genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no no telling. The faith of Joshua is amazing. And we have to understand Joshua hadn't read the book. We've read it over and over again. We know what's going to happen. Joshua hadn't read the book. When he says, son, stand still, and he said it in the hearing of the children of Israel, I wonder, did they say, oh, Joshua's tired. He's worn out. He's delirious. He doesn't mean what he's saying. Let me read verse 13 again. So the son stood still. And the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Gleason Archer, a brilliant scholar. I love his book. He's written a piece on just the part where it says hasten to go down. He says Joshua is not saying that the sun and the moon, that the whole process ceased but it slowed down to a point. And if you Google this, you'll find that in Egyptian history, in Babylonian history, 
in Greek history, they all have the history of a long day. The Aztecs, uh, American Indians, the Incas, they also have history of this long night. And my point is, how did it happen? Every morning when you watch the news, it's, they say the sun rises at this time and the sun sets at this time and we know the sun does neither. That's just a phrase. The earth rotates. And so what happened, as Gleason Archer said, God slowed it down so much He didn't jam the brakes and the oceans come out of the basin. He didn't do that. But he slowed it down so much that it was almost another day so Joshua and his boys could fight. I don't find that hard to do for a God who spoke this world into existence. That's the kind of God I serve. I don't find that hard to do that a God who could split the Red Sea or the Jordan River. I don't find that hard to do that a man that has been dead for three days resurrect again. I don't know about you guys. I serve a mighty God. I have no problem believing what the Holy Spirit says here. He's going to resurrect my body. And and I'm sure he's going to have to resurrect my body from the ashes because I'm going to be cremated from the ashes. Chuck Swindoll says he he had a guy that was saying, well, Chuck, how does he, how does he, how is he going to resurrect my grandma's body? Because we buried her in a cow field and and, and an apple tree has grown up a huge apple tree, so all of her particles and all is in that apple tree. How is that going to happen, God? How's that going to happen, Chuck? And Chuck says, you don't have to worry. My God can do it. What about all those souls lost in, in the seas, in the oceans, all those things? We serve a mighty God. I'm not worried about it. He slowed this thing down and gave Joshua the victory, and I'm glad of it. He did that because we serve a mighty God. So what do we get out of this, what God did? Let me read verse 15 first. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. There will be many impostors that tries to wrestle, that tries to climb up on the throne of our hearts that only Jesus Christ should be reigning on. He died for our sins. He wants to give us all of his great and precious promises. But they only come if we allow him to have full reign of our lives. We must allow the greater than Joshua to have his way in us, and the worship team can come up. And this happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. You guys, we have to learn to 
understand what we're dealing with down here. Every day is not going to be a bed of roses. I might not get another day that is a bed of roses. I don't know why I'm, so please forgive me as the Apostle Paul would say, but I know a little girl. And fat girl is still beautiful, but I know a little girl. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. A thinker. She, she could do everything. But not so much now. And what keeps her going is that she knows the Lord. And fat girl said, hey, We're buying a house, but I feel like this is going to be my coffin. I'll never get another one. But then she says, but that's okay, Daddy. God is, she says, God is going to keep me. What she says is, God is good. After she tells me that, she says, God, but God is good. Isn't that what she says? And we see her going down, but there's joy there. And it's because she knows every step she takes over that ridge, she's going to meet her Savior. We're all going to meet our Savior, no matter what we have to put up with down here. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And once again, what it means by more, we're in the battle. I already know I've won the battle. So fear not, I'm with you. That's for all of us here that's believers. Those that don't know Jesus Christ, come to him. Repent of your sins and give your lives to him. Give your lives to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your great and precious promises. I thank you for loved ones, people I love so much. I see them going through things. And I wish I could do something. I wish, because I know if I could heal them, I would heal them. But I'm still trusting in you. I know your ways are not my ways. I know your ways are higher than mine. I cannot attain unto them. But I trust you. The Bible says you do all things well. I just pray for an extra measure of grace for those that are hurting those that have to battle each and every day, all day long, with their health or with their anxiety or whatever it is, Lord. Show them your power. Show them your strength. Show them your great and precious promises that you've said you never leave us nor forsake us, that you will be with us until the end of the age. I believe, help my unbelief. And we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with us.